Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And welcome everyone to our latest edition of March Madness 365, obviously a a very unique edition of our podcast and uh, in an attempt to pass the time for all of us here as we uh, are homebound and uh, basically trying to to ride uh, this out, uh, we thought we'd sort of reflect back on some March Madness moments uh, over the last really 50 years. Um, And what we wanted to do was break up our bracket into four regions. So we had a round of 64 region. We had a round of 32 slash sweet 16 region. So we grouped that together. Then we had a, an elite eight region and a final four slash national championship region. So four regions, uh, you can see this on our March madness, uh, social media handles, uh, all across the board. And uh, we're going to have voting uh, so you can participate. We want to have the engagement from you. So I had to see this, obviously. And what I wanted to do was break it up. uh, And and look, this is a, I think, a no-lose situation. Someone could say a no-win because you could have plenty of moments here that I didn't put on. Uh, You may disagree with how I seated, but... No one is going to be 100% right, and no one's going to be 100% wrong how they would do this. So let's start, uh, and I have interviews along the way that I want you to hear from each of these regions. And so we will do that and spread it out. So we'll start with the round of 64. And, you know, I don't have to go through all 16 seeds, but look, at the top, I had the UMBC upset of Virginia. That was a 16-1, and, you know, clearly... It's never happened before, so I felt like it had to be at the top. Um, you know, there's a number of these that are not just shots. They're also moments, if you will, or uh, significant teams that had a win during these rounds. So, for example, Northwestern's first ever tournament appearance also had their first ever tournament win in 2017. I put that as a four seed because of the significance. Um, just a moment when Bo Kimball, uh, after the death of Hank Gathers, uh, had a lefty free throw to honor Hank Gathers. Um, that happened in 1990. That was my five seed. Uh, you know, <laughs> you could argue about where I was going to put all these. Bryce Drew's buzzer beater in, uh, uh, that was in 1998. Eight for Valpo over Ole Miss. That was a two seed. Uh, but, you know, what I wanted to do, so spread this out. We're going to have voting all along the way, and we're going to get to a final four. Uh, but in this region, you know, one of the games that sticks out to me, certainly, and ended up being a three seed for me in this in this region, was the Princeton upset of reigning national champion UCLA. This happened in 1996. The Bruins won the title in 95. Well, if you watch the highlights from that 43-41 victory, uh, one of the players who's jumping the highest after that uh, final buzzer was Mitch Henderson, uh, who was uh, on the floor at the time uh, and is now the head coach of his alma mater from Princeton. So Mitch Henderson joined me to break down that incredible upset for Princeton. Champions, 43 to 41. 
And now joining me here, March Madness 365, for our bracket on some of the best moments uh, in the first round, the second round, Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, the Final Four, and National Championship. And, you know, one of the ones that I certainly wanted to include in our first round moments was certainly from 1996, the 43-41 Princeton upset over UCLA in the first round. Now, this was not a 16-1, so, you know, it was not as dramatic as that, but uh, certainly UCLA was coming off a championship in 95, and they were still shocked by the Princeton Tigers. Now joining me, the head head coach of the Princeton Tigers today, Mitch Henderson, but he was on the floor then. Uh, Mitch, thanks for joining me. Um, When I bring back the 43-41 game from 96, what do you remember the most? Uh, it's, um, the thing that stands out by far is the celebration with Coach Carrill and his staff. Um, you know, Bill Carmody on that staff was Bill Carmody, who ended up taking over as the head coach, Joe Scott, John Thompson. Um, you know, you had three head coaches as assistants, future head coaches. You had a Hall of Fame head coach. And then, the, you know, the, the celebration with the teammates afterwards, you realize <clears throat> sort of as you walk out of the RC, what was then the RCA Dome in Annapolis, it was the last game, one of the last games that night that, you know, you kind of feel like something really special just happened. And, it, you know, it was Coach Carrill had retired in the playoff game against Penn the week before. So, um, you know, he was maybe coaching his last game as a head coach. And, you know, so to be able to do something like that for the, for each other, for him uh, and for the school was just so special. So how much was the almost 16 one, which was a decade earlier uh, against Georgetown that almost happened? How how much did that come into play uh, when you were a player or even in this moment, you know, when you guys were on the bench as, as this was a possibility of happening during the course of this game? You know, Andy, I mean, I, I would, I, I can't remember back then as well as what I kind of, what I, what's a little bit more clear to me these days, being a head coach, being in college basketball and understanding, you know, how, number one, how few of these opportunities, they don't come around that often. We had a sense that, um, you know, leading into that 95, 96 season that coach Carrill was getting closer to retirement. He would say to us in practice, you know, Hey, Billy, when it's your team, you can do this. You know, sort of talking to Coach Carmody during practices. But, um, you know, you as you prepare for these games, you know that the, the margin for error is just so small. And UCLA, you know, maybe wasn't as big of a uh, – even then as, as a team as Georgetown, but you're talking about a team that I think had won the Pac-10 by a few games. They were, you know, as you mentioned, they had come off of a national championship. And the more – and, you know – we immediately go down seven to one, you know, uh, or seven, nothing. But I, I think that, you know, now I understand and appreciate so much more how hard it is to win those games. And even when you execute things perfectly, they don't always go your way. So, um, you know, to be able to be on the floor, you know, Gabe Luellis making the layup was the play that the backdoor layup on Charles O'Bannon was the play that, you know, stands out, but Sidney Johnson made some huge threes, Chris Doyle with some huge steals for us towards the end. And then, they had uh, the ball shooting an intentional foul with, you know, 40 or so seconds left. And they missed both to give us a chance. So you got to get a little lucky, too. And, and that was a 13 uh, versus a 4. Yes. I think people forget that. I think they think it might have been a 16-1, even though it wasn't. Um, but how much do you think that win, even though the seed was not as dramatic as, you know, 16-1 or 15-2, was sort of laid the groundwork you know, for upsets that would happen in years and decades later uh, from teams that might have come from one bid leagues against a power league. Yeah, I guess you could draw some sort of a line between that game and potentially UMBC's upset of Virginia. You know, we saw so many close games, but I think, Andy, that the, the parallel that I see since I've gotten into coaching, which wasn't too far after that game, is is the kids – the players are so much more familiar with each other um, by the time you get to the tournament. So, you know, when we took the floor against UCLA, we knew who they all were. They didn't know who we were at all. You know, they were highest ranked players in the country. Yeah. And I got your point that obviously, you know, in that era, in the nineties, 
you know, you knew who they were. They didn't know who you were. And for the most part, that has changed in this modern era of college basketball here uh, in this new decade. Uh, Mitch, I appreciate it. Stay safe. Um, and uh, more than anything, we hope that we're back on the court uh, watching your current Princeton team uh, sooner than later. Yeah, thanks a lot, Andy, and stay safe to you too. All right, so let's come out of the round of 64 and go to our round of 32 slash Sweet 16. We had to group these together because we only can have four regions. Uh, and so in this grouping, um, this was tough because we're putting two rounds together in this grouping. And there's so many different things I could have. We were eliminating, we were moving things. I was moving things up and down. Um, you know, for example, there's so many different moments I could have chosen from Gonzaga. And I went with, in 99, their game winner, uh, you know, was historic. That was on their run uh, to the Final Four, excuse me, to the Elite Eight, almost getting to the Final Four, lost to UConn in the Elite Eight. But that was the beginning of what we've seen the last 20 years of the Zags. Uh, Chris Chioza, a buzzer beater going coast to coast for Florida against Wisconsin in 2017. Jordan Poole's buzzer beater for Michigan over Houston in 2018. Uh you know, the the Dunk City run of Florida Gulf Coast in 2015. Um, but here, here's what's interesting. I chose two moments to get some interviews for you that I thought would be interesting. Uh, first off, Danny Ainge from BYU, 1981. The length of the court layup uh, to beat Notre Dame, 51-50. Now, of course, the head of the Boston Celtics, but uh, still an iconic member memory for all March Madness uh, moments uh, over the last quarter. Uh, I mean, really, the last modern era of college basketball. This happened in 1981. BYU knocking off Notre Dame because of this Danny Ainge layup. Here's Danny. Notre Dame ahead by one. And there are eight seconds to go. Ainge against Paxson. Five seconds. Inside. Ainge scores with two seconds. One second on the clock. It is all over. It is all over. And the Heroes banner goes to Danny Ainge. Frank Arnold and Brigham Young have won this glamour game. 51 to 50. And now joining me here on March Madness 365, Danny Ainge. Uh... The uh, executive vice president, uh, if I've got that title correct, uh, all things basketball with the Boston Celtics. But for these purposes, we got to go back to BYU, 1981, March 19th, 51-50 victory over Notre Dame when you went coast to coast with the game-winning layup. Uh, certainly one of the best moments uh, that I can remember in NCAA tournament history. Uh, so l- let's go back, if you can, back to that moment in 1981, Danny. Um if you can set set the table for me right before that play, uh, what what you remember, what you knew you had to accomplish before you even got the basketball. Well, first of all, I think I listened to you tell me the score of that game, fifty one to fifty, with all the talented players. It must have been eight or ten NBA players on that court um, in that NCAA tournament, BYU versus Notre Dame. And uh, we had our big guys in foul trouble and they were in a slowdown. They had gotten the lead and we were in foul trouble and we couldn't guard uh, Orlando Woldridge or Kelly Chapuka. And uh, they were playing a box and one on me throughout, throughout the entire game. And so I was mostly a playmaker through, throughout that game. And so at, with eight seconds to go, I think it was, or seven seconds to go, Kelly Chapuka hit a beautiful 20-foot fadeaway shot to put them ahead by one. And we called timeout. And during the timeout, we were anticipating they were going to stay in a box and one or drop back into a zone of some sort. And, um, you know, and I was going to try to push the ball up the court as fast as I could, anticipating that I was going to get trapped and double team and have to kick it to one of my teammates for a shot. And that's how I went out on the court. And, um, so I tried to get the ball on the run, and as I got it on the run, I was just able to split the defense and go around a couple other guys as they extended their defense against me. And I uh, was able to get in the open court, and I got all the way to the paint. I wasn't anticipating being able to do that, but I was able to get all the way into the paint and shoot a high layup over Orlando Woldridge for the game winner. I mean, it's hard to know at that moment, but now that you look back, did you have any idea that that was going to 
be as iconic as it ultimately became? No, I, he didn't at the time, for sure. It was a big moment. And, you know, I think the greatness of the moment for me was it was a really good team. Notre Dame was loaded with players. Uh, we didn't play particularly well. Um, and we were able to beat a great team with a great coach in a crazy environment. And that's what I remember most about. It was the great players that we beat. Yeah, I'm looking at this box score right now in front of me. I mean, John Paxson, he only had four points in that game. I mean, you, you know, he went one for five. You know, Woldridge had 17. Trapuca had 14. Uh, and Tra- Tracy Jackson had 11. Those were the, the double-figure scores for Notre Dame. For you guys, you know, people might have forgotten, but I mean, Fred Roberts was on this team, Greg Kite. Uh, I mean, so you had the bigs there. And, and you know, you only, I mean, I say only had 12, uh, you were the leading scorer, but you guys only scored 51, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, what, it, there was good balance from you guys, but when you look at what happened on the other side too, just the, as you said, the amount of talent that was on the floor and yet it was still only a 51, 50 game. Right. And, and part of that is because Fred Roberts and Greg Kite, I think picked up fourth fouls with about 14 or 15 minutes to go in the game. Notre Dame had a lead a double-figure lead, 13 or 14 points, I think, approximately. And in those days, there was no shot clock. So they stalled. They put the game on ice, and they tried to um, just hold all the possessions, and and there wasn't a lot we could do. And like I said, I, they ran a box and one on, on me the whole game. So it was tough to get any freedom to get shots off, and especially as slow as the game went. So, yeah, there was a lot of talent in the, in the game. And if that team was to play a game today, I think it would probably be close to 100, somewhere in the 90s. So, you know, I think about your coast-to-coast, Tyus Edney. Um, obviously, we've had other iconic moments, more maybe from the perimeter, you know, even just most recently, a couple of years ago with Chris Jenkins with his game-winning three. Um, historically, do you love the drive to the hoop or do you love, like, a game-winning three? Um I don't know. I think that it depends. I, I think that the game-winning three can be spectacular. Uh, I've seen a lot of them. Some of it is luck. I think the drive to the hoop, depending on who you're playing against and and you know what kind of a drive it is, can be very spectacular. I'm not sure there is an answer to that. Um, you know, I think that Kelly Chapuka's shot that he made to go up one on us. Uh, was more difficult than mine. Mine was a layup over a shot blocker. But, you know, the play that I had to make to get around everybody was probably a little bit more exciting anyway, if, if, if even though it might not have been as difficult. Hey, so while I have you on the phone, I might as well ask you, um, as an alum, uh, just to put a bow on it because we didn't get a chance to see what they could have accomplished. Uh, what were your thoughts on, on BYU this season? You know, it was a really fun team to watch. I, I, I had a chance to see them in Maui play three games without Yoli, their best player. And um, I was impressed. You know, they were able to beat Virginia Tech and beat UCLA. You know, I I thought that, well, when they get Yoli back, after having added Alex and and Jake Toulson to the team, I thought, like, they had a chance to beat anybody on a good night, especially with college not having a powerhouse of a team. So I thought that they had a, a, an amazing chance. And, uh, you know, they lost a couple tough games. They lost a game against Utah during the year. That was a game that they shouldn't have lost. That Yoli got hurt with six or seven minutes to go in the game. That was the toughest, was the low point of the year. And then their last game against St. Mary's, I know how crushing that was. St. Mary's is just a really well-coached team and just tough for anybody to beat. But I thought going into the NCAA tournament in my bracket, I was going to have them getting a ways in the tournament for sure, because I thought they did have a lot of talent and, and they had a lot of experience and they had great team chemistry. Well, Danny, I appreciate it. Uh, obviously you were able to provide one of the iconic moments in March madness history, uh, but most importantly now uh, stay safe and uh, hopefully we'll get on the other side of this here soon. All right, Andy. Thanks. So in the last couple of years, one of the greatest comebacks uh, in, in the round of 32 came when Nevada was down 22 in the second half and beat Cincinnati. That happened in 2018. The head coach then was Eric Musselman. Now he's at Arkansas. So Eric Musselman joined me here on March Madness 365 to break down that epic comeback. 
Cody Martin, step back two, is short, rebound to Hall, they gotta get the last shot, Hall, gets the bounce, four seconds to go, boom, his pass deflected, ball is loose, and that is it, Nevada pulls off a miracle! And now joining me here, March Madness 365, Arkansas head coach Eric Musselman, but a couple of seasons ago, he was a head coach in Nevada for an epic 75-73 win for the Wolfpack when they came back from 22 down at the half. Uh, it certainly made my list for one of the top moments uh, over the last, whatever, a couple of decades uh, from the second round. Uh, Eric, uh, let's go back to maybe that halftime. Um, <laughs> what, were you, what was your little spiel there in the, in, in the locker room when you're down 22 points to Cincinnati? <laughs> well, Andy, if I could go back pregame, what I usually do is I usually ask the assistant coaches what it's like out on the floor, meaning what is the other team? You know, are they focused? Uh, how big big are they? Because you never know based on film. And Gus Arginal and my son, Michael Musselman, came back um, and they both said, and Michael wasn't on staff at the time, but Gus certainly was one of the assistants, came back and Gus said, coach, you don't want to know how big and how physical Cincinnati is, even in their pregame warmups. So, so we knew we were faced with the tough tasks. Uh, but then at halftime, I think Andy, we were down 12. Um, and, and yeah, I'm sorry. You were down 12. I'm, I'm misreading. You were down 12, not 22, 22 in the second half. Yeah. Right. And I remember down 12. The first thing I wrote on the board was minus 12. Um, and, and, and then I said, Hey, this, this is doable. Uh, but with Cincinnati's physicality, um, knowing that they're really well coached. I said, we, we can't waste another second of this 20 minutes. Well, that thing went from, from 12 to 22. And at that point, we knew we had to change up our defense. Uh, and we did at about the 15 or about the 14 minute mark. Uh, we went to what we call shadow or hit. And we actually left uh, Cincinnati's point guards and we ended up trapping the first pass. So we left Jennifer, uh, who ended up on that game going one of five and we left broom who went one of six. So the two players we left op- wide open were two for 11 in that game. And what we wanted to do is we didn't want Clark to get any more touches and Clark was five of six in the game. And we felt like if he had 10 or 11 field goals, that there was no way we could win. And then we wanted to try to make Evans's shots much more difficult. And in that game, Evans took 19 field goals to get 19 points. Um, and then, and then the biggest key, you know, maybe of all, um, uh, was the foul trouble when Cumberland fouled out at that point, I knew we had a shot to win that thing. And the, the really fascinating thing, Andy, is you would think if you come back, you know, down 22, that us, meaning Nevada, shot the ball well from from the three-point line or from the foul line. We were 9 of 16 in that game from the foul line for just 56%. It was one of our worst free-throw shooting games of the year. And then from three, we only made six threes, and we were a pretty good three-point. Yeah, six of 18. Yeah, so, so it was amazing. And then on the flip side, all right, if you're down 22, people think you're probably fouling, and the opposing team – Cincinnati shooting poorly from the foul line. They they shot 82% from the foul line. So when you factor all that stuff in, it is one of the most remarkable comebacks ever. Well, and I'll throw another stat at you. Somehow you only had two turnovers. If this box score is correct, I'm looking at. I mean, how is that even possible? Well, we became, as the season progressed, you know, that was the year that Lindsey Drew, our three-year starter at the point guard, and one of the lowest volume turnover players all year, he tore his Achilles at Boise State with about nine or ten games left. And we had to move our starting power forward, Cody Martin, to the point guard spot once Drew tore his Achilles. And we were worried about being a turnover team. But Cody Martin was absolutely incredible when he started playing the point. We changed the way we played. We weren't quite as fast. We were a little bit more methodical. Um, and, and, and in that particular game, uh, both Martins, who played 40 minutes and 31 minutes, those two guys who had the ball in the hands, the bulk of the game, they had zero turnovers. And it, it, insanely, our starting lineup 
only had one turnover in the game. So certainly the ball security thing really played a hand uh, into us being able to come back and, and, and win that game. Well, you never had great depth, but if I'm not mistaken, you only played six players. We played six guys. That's exactly right. Once Lindsey Drew went down, uh, we, we rolled with six guys. Um, Josh Hall, who came off the bench, uh, had one of his best games at Nevada. Uh, he was six for eight from the field, uh, had 14 points. He did a good job on the defensive backboards. I think it was the second leading rebounder in that game um, for us. And we got, we got beat on the glass pretty bad. I mean, it was a double-digit rebounding margin that we had to overcome um you know but i mean look the martin twins now that it's all said and done now cody is playing the point guard for charlotte caleb had a heck of a game before the nba and stopped playing i think he was five of six from three his last nba game and those two guys just really really special players and then you know, Kendall Stevens was one of the best three-point shooters in, in college basketball, and certainly Jordan Caroline, uh, who had a really good game for us that game. He had five assists and, and 13 points uh, and led us in rebounding with seven. So we, we had a really talented team as well. The locker room celebration. Was this the one when you went shirtless after? I can't remember. Uh, this was the one that I might have cursed, not knowing the camera was in there, and I did go shirtless. And, what happened, Andy, is, is we had a crew following us. Um, it was one of the network crews. We were one of the teams that they picked to follow through until you were eliminated. So we were used to having three or four camera people with us. What I didn't know is that there was a live mic in the locker room when we walked in there because I just saw the cameras that I thought were always with us. So that was not a good thing. But, yes, the shirt came off. Uh, the celebration began and, you know, we thought that after beating Cincinnati, when we looked at our bracket, we felt really good about what could happen. And then we end up losing by one or two to Loyola, but we were a basket away from playing in an elite eight. And, uh, you know, the, the coolest thing about all that, I, I mean, I've coached it, you know, overseas and in, in Olympic type situations or pre-Olympics and, and FIBA basketball and, and coach two NBA. There's nothing. There is nothing like winning a game in the NCAA tournament or winning two games. It's the greatest feeling in the world as a coach and as a player. And it just the on campus, you know, euphoria that happens is just insane. And, and, uh, it's the best two weeks or whatever that I've ever experienced as a coach. It's the funnest time my family's had my two sons, my daughter, and all of our players and the players' parents. its It really, truly is the greatest event that you can ever participate in. Well, Eric, it was one of the greatest moments, uh, certainly in modern time, in terms of that comeback. Uh, down 12 at the half and 22 with 11 minutes left as you come back and uh, win this thing. Unbelievable. 2018, Nevada 75, Cincinnati 73. Most importantly now, Eric, stay safe. Hopefully we get on the other side of all of this and give my best to your family. I will, Andy. Same to your family. Thanks for having me on. All right, so let's move on to the Elite Eight. You know, look, top of the bracket here, you had to go with Christian Leitner's buzzer beater uh, for Duke against Kentucky. Hard to top that as a one seed. You know, but look, I want to stay some modern, stay modern as well. And uh, Diakite's buzzer beater to force overtime just last year for Virginia against Purdue, unbelievable game in Louisville. I was there. That was epic. Um, so many different ones that I could choose. I mean, there was another Leitner, buzzer beater beat UConn. Uh, that's a 13 seed for me. Uh, this was a tough bracket, very tough bracket. But I'm going to tell you, one of the greatest Elite Eight games ever. I wasn't there, but I watched it because I was at another regional site at the time. Uh, I'm going to highlight... The Illinois-Arizona game from 2005, which to me will still go down as one of the greatest elite games ever. And for those purposes, I sought out Roger Powell, who was a starting uh, member of that team for the Illini in 2005, now currently an assistant with Gonzaga. Here's Roger Powell. Panic right now in Darren Williams' offense. Luther heads another three, and he hits this one. 
Deep around. And they're going to chew up. No, Harris head. Another steal. Luther head. Williams takes it all the way for the easy two. Final minute. Luther head. He hits the three. Call the foul, and D. Brown gets two. Williams could tie it with a three. He does. He's got to hurry. Finally forced to shoot, and the ball game is over. Illinois in overtime advances to the final four. And now joining me here, March Madness 365, Roger Powell, who's an assistant coach at Gonzaga now, but. Back in 2005, he was a starter on Illinois, a team that ultimately played for the national championship against North Carolina in what I would argue is one of the greatest Elite Eight games ever. I was in another site. I can't remember where. So I wasn't there, but I was tracking it wherever I was. I remember I was watching it. It was at Allstate Arena. It was 90-89 in overtime. Illinois over Arizona. That was the Illinois team. Darren Williams, D. Brown, Luther, James Augustine, and yourself. Roger Powell against an Arizona team that had Salim Stoudemire, who could ball from anywhere, Channing Fry, Hassan Adams, Mustafa Shakur. I mean, they had some players on that Arizona team. So, Roger, uh, let's first, in general, what's your favorite memory of that game at Allstate Arena? Man, well, first of all, it was unbelievably loud, you know, and it's so funny. People joke and they say, hey, when we came back and won that game and we tied it for overtime, people say that like the city of Chicago, like there was like a little mini earthquake because like there were so many people watching the game and cheering. So I remember just the environment was super loud. And then I think at the end of the game, like I remember on the court and, you know, at that time, you know, like I wrote scriptures on my shoes and I just remember like pointing to my shoes with Jesus written on it saying like, this is a miracle. And just praising God because no one in their right mind thought we were going to come back and win that game. We were down with two minutes to go in regulation. And I just remember the joy of, uh, you know, knowing that we were going to get to go to the final four, a place that everyone expects us to get, first of all, and then be able to do it in St. Louis, you know, with our fans. It was just it was supernatural, a supernatural feeling. Yeah, actually, like so Salim Stoudemire. Uh, I remember I went earlier to that season to a game in Oregon. He was just balling, and, and you guys held him to nine points. Uh, so he wasn't the one that really hurt you. It was Adams had 21, Fry had 24. Um, and and your, your group, I mean, you had 16, uh, Luther had 20, um, you know, Darren Williams had 22. And I remember going to see you guys, I, I think, early when you guys went against, if I'm not mistaken, Chris Paul in the ACC Big Ten Challenge early in the season. Was that that year? Yeah, that was yeah. that year. Yeah. Yeah, against we were number three. We were ranked number three, and they were number one. And we, man, we kind of we thumped them at our place, and then from there on out, the rest of the year we were number one. So t- tell me again. I'm trying to remember now because the game was going back and forth. Uh, you know, you guys are Illinois team, Chicago area team. You're playing outside of O'Hare Airport in that whole that that area. Uh, what was it like as you were coming back? after it was like big shot, big shot, like, cause they would make one. You, you guys would like that, that whole back and forth that was going on toward the end of regulation and then into overtime. Well, I know like during the regulation, like I was actually having a pretty good game. I only scored two points in the overtime, but in regulation, like I was scoring a good amount and, you know, just, we were kind of, we we're kind of not playing great. And like, I was kind of, you know, I was the guy that was, you know, offensive rebound, you know, get a dunk here, attack the rim. So I was having a decent game and like our guards who, you know, obviously they always play well, you know, it was just like we couldn't, I, I feel like we couldn't get going. And then, so I was, you know, like I, once we got down to, I mean, once, once we got down in the last, you know, with three minutes, I remember like D and Darren and Luther just kind of went on a tear and they got still after still and score. And then we tied the game up and it's like, they just kind of came alive. And, um, you know, and, and, and then the second and in and overtime, it was just it was a wrap. Like I knew we were going to win, but it was just, you know, it was kind of one of those games were just eerie and like we weren't nothing was really going our way. And, you know, they got up big on us. And it's just like those three guys, man, kind of came alive. And, um, yeah, it was it was it was special, man. And we really hunkered down on defense. You know, I think that was something that, you know, kind of like we were going to win that game. Like our will was to win that game. And, and you. You could see it in everyone's face, and it just kind of – you see Arizona's confidence kind of went down once he came back, and it was it was a wrap. And it didn't help with us 
you know, being playing in Chicago because like that every, didn't help every possession. No, I'm, it didn't help Arizona. Oh, right, right, right. Because like, you know, every possession, every time we would score, every time we do get a steal, like our fans were just like helping us. They were right there with us. And it just like you can feel the energy and just, you know, everything kind of came together. Yeah. I mean, to that point, it doesn't happen that often that you can get to the final four playing in your home state. Uh, I mean, how much did that add to that season, that moment? that you wanted in the state of Illinois to get to the final four? I mean, it was special, you know, and, um, and obviously, <laughs> you know, being here in Gonzaga now and knowing that we could have had a chance to play in Spokane, you know, whenever you can play in your home state, better yet your home city. I mean, it's your, your fans just take more ownership of it. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's like I said, it makes the, the moment that much more memorable and enjoyable. And obviously your fans, the people that are able to be in that environment because everyone can't come because it's, you know, you're in a small arena and you got tons of Illinois fans, you know, it's like those people who were there, like they embrace that moment. And it just, it was special and it doesn't happen all the time. You know, it's like the stars have to align and everything has to work out for you to have that experience. And we had it, you know? Well, Roger, I have it as one of my all time greatest elite eight games. Where is it for you? Oh, it, it's the best, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing. I mean, come <laughs> I on. I know the answer. Yeah, there's, there's no, there's no other. Yeah, I, that's that's my that's the only elite eight game I played in, you know. And you know, it, it was the best because like I was a part of it. Probably second for me, my greatest, my greatest moment was, you know, I think the final four game because in the second half I, I just went crazy and we ended up winning and, and taking Illinois to you know a place that they'd never been, which is a championship game. So for me. I think that was the greatest moment for me just because you know, I had like 18 points in the second half and we ended up making it to the championship game. But as far as like comebacks and elite eight and environment and excitement, I mean, there's no other moment in my whole basketball career, coaching, playing all together. That was better than that. And, and I would also add Roger that um, I'm a huge proponent and they, they've kind of moved away from this in terms of regional finals but I think they have to be played in these kind of arenas rather than the big domes. If you want to do the dome, save them for the final fours, but not the regional final. Like that, you, you mentioned the beginning of this, how loud it was. You don't get that if it's in the dome or a dome versus in a pro arena for an elite eight. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think it makes it more exclusive too. You know, it means that much more when you have an arena where there's only like, you know, 15, 16,000 fans. Like those people that get to go to that game, you know, it's like, it's exclusive now, as opposed to having a dome and you can't really fill it up, you know? Well, Roger, it'll be a memory that we all have that uh, certainly uh, watched it uh, or, or were there, and you, you've got something for the rest of your life. Uh, more than anything right now, stay safe, and hopefully we'll be watching you coach the Zags as an assistant in the fall again. I appreciate it, Roger. Thank you. Hey, appreciate you. Thank you. All right, so now we're on to our Final Four and National Championship region once again. I, I can only pick 16. I mean, I could have done 16 for each semifinal, easily 16 for the national championship game. Uh, but I got to pick from basically a three-game window, pick 16. Very tough, very tough. The Magic Bird game, you know, the significance of that. How could that not be number one? Had it as a three seed. There'll be some questions on that. Well, I want to go a little modern. And for me, what I, I witnessed the Chris Jenkins shot for Villanova in 2016, unbelievable how that game shifted from one end to the other where Marcus Page hits the three right before, and then Jenkins wins it at the buzzer for the national championship. At the buzzer for the national championship. Mario Chalmers shot in 08 to force overtime between Kansas and Memphis. Keith Smart's game winner, not at the buzzer though, close, uh, for Indiana in 87. Uh, you know, Wisconsin ending Kentucky's perfect season in 2015. How about Duke? Uh, both ends here getting routed by UNLV in 1990 and then beating Vegas the following year when no one thought that Vegas could lose. Virginia winning. Um, you know, look, Jimmy V running around in 1983 after NC State uh, wins at the buzzer. Uh, different than the Jenkins shot. Because it was a shot that ended up being a putback, um, uh, as amazing as that was, and historic, there was something about the Hollywood ending of the Jenkins shot that moved me a little bit more. And obviously, I was there. So, and then of course the Gordon Hayward 
heave that almost went in in 2010 that would have blown the roof off of Lucas Oil Stadium at the time uh, for Butler to beat Duke. But for me, the number one moment in those three games, semifinals, national championship game, was easily the most significant moment, okay, of modern college basketball because of what it meant. And that to me was the 1966 Texas Western, all African-American starting five. They knocked off Kentucky. Uh, So I want you to hear from Dan Wetzel of Yahoo Sports, who wrote the book, Glory Road, researched, detailed the significance of this moment. Because to me, it has to be the number one seed. Some people out there may not agree with me, but I think it has to be the number one seed. So here's Dan Wetzel on the significance. Foul and a goal tapped on Texas Western. Quick one, five, and the ball game is over. Lloyd Dasher slips down right in the middle of the floor. Pat Riley stands defectively looking at the floor. As Kentucky has lost the championship game for the first time in their history. And now joining me here on March Madness 365, Dan Wetzel from Yahoo Sports. But for these purposes, the author of Glory Road came out in 2005. Uh, book details the run of Texas Western, coached by the late great Bayer, Don Haskins, uh, the first all-black starting five in 1966 that won the national championship. Um, this, of course, had to make our list for, and even though this isn't greatest moments, it sort of also includes greatest uh events or historical moments, if you will, in terms of not just a shot, but a team that won a national championship. And of course, this had to be at the top of the list. Uh, Dan, um, now you've had time, obviously, to digest. You wrote the book on it, but years even later, can you put in perspective what that team accomplished and why it should always be at the top of any list when you look at some of the greatest moments in the history of the tournament? Well, um, they were 28 and one. They were really good. They did not have the list of NBA superstars, um, but they had a, a tremendous defensive team. Uh, and they had uh, David Latin did play some in the NBA and uh, they had a lot of really good players. Bobby Joe Hill probably could have. He's a little small, but um, but obviously the historical context of this was was unbelievable. Uh, back in that era, there were teams that had. Uh, African-American were playing, uh, but there was none in the Southwestern conference, which is basically all of Texas and Oklahoma, none in the sec and none in the ACC, nothing in the South, no African-American players, uh, even teams that had an African-American player or two or three, you always had to have a couple white guys on the court. And that was just the sentiment. And, Nobody really had the courage to play five at once. And they understood, coaches understood the significance of that, or they would hear about it from their, their, uh, you know, fans or alums or whatever. And Don Haskins, as you know, and anyone knows college basketball, he is a, a, a unbelievable character. I always call him the John Wayne of basketball because that was pretty much his, his, his uh, attitude on everything was an extremely hard headed guy. And he had grown up in Enid, Oklahoma, playing. He was obsessed with playing basketball. He ended up playing at Oklahoma A&M for Henry Ivan. But his best friend was this other kid in town uh, named Herman Carr, who he would play basketball with at the court. And he was African-American. And so he just had this different attitude about it. He's very hard headed. And when at, at Texas Western became UTEP, he was allowed to recruit as many African-American kids as he wanted. It's a, El Paso is a border town. It's a very progressive, uh, just very racially diverse. Very, It's a very unique place in America. And so he was able to do it, and he just played them. So he had an all-black starting five for the entire year. And uh, he certainly heard about it on the road and all of that, but there was nothing that was going to change his thing. He just said, I'm playing my best players, and that's all there's going to be. And uh, because of that, this team took on an unbelievable um, – importance and then when they finally made you know the games were not on tv much in the 1960s or almost at all no one saw this team really until the championship game when they go up against kentucky now kentucky obviously is the big name they got adolph rupp and that team is all white and the visual 
that what beamed across to America of this all black team and an all white team. And it could have been anybody it could have been Duke or, or Utah. They were the only black players in the entire final four for the Texas Western kids. And for them to win that game was just absolutely massive. Nolan Richardson, who, who previously played for Haskins at Texas Western literally said that night, Don Haskins got thousands and thousands of black kids around America scholarships to college because all of a sudden the floodgates began opening, particularly in the South. So probably no game was more significant than this. I mean, a couple of things. First of all, I, I love the fact that it was against Kentucky. Like, it, you know, it could have been against anyone, uh, but it just, it, it feels even just bigger, the David Goliath versus Kentucky. Right. And then secondly, to your point, you know, I, I, I don't, and, and I knew, as you know, I knew, uh, Coach Haskins, I covered him in the early 90s when he was at UTEP. And, uh, you know, I know he didn't think of himself like this, but it's it's bizarre when you think after the fact that, in a way, he ends up being uh, one of the heroes, if you will, of the civil rights movement without, like, planning on it because of what you just said. Yeah, he, he was so hard-headed. And, you know, there he was a very courageous guy. And people look at it now and say, well, it worked out and all of this stuff. But he he was 36 years old at the time, 35 when that season started. And he is coaching at Texas Western, making nothing. He has four kids. For a while, they lived in the, the athletic dorm because they couldn't afford a house. And, you know, he doesn't have any money. No one knows this is going to work. Um, it sounds good now. You win the national title. He, but he doesn't know. He also took chances on, or let me say this, he took the perception of chances because first of a kid of college kid of any race could get in trouble, right? So someone gets in trouble, there's a fight, there is a drinking incident, just anything that happens on a normal team. He is in a, he, he has put his career on the line and he trusted these guys and all of them are tremendous people. I mean, the best part of writing that book other than being around coach Haskins but getting to know all these guys who throughout their entire life and some of them passed away, sadly, by now, were just great fathers and grandfathers and businessmen and just went on to successful lives. But just a terrific group of guys. But Haskins took that chance on him. But he wins the national championship. He doesn't know. So he's risking his entire career on these kids and saying, I'm doing what I think is right. I'm not listening to what everyone else says. And his coaching friends are saying what are you crazy? No one's going to take you as a coach. If you're known as the guy that coached all, all the black kids. And here's what happens. He wins a national title at 36. He doesn't get hired immediately somewhere else. He basically never gets another really good job offer other than a couple times. Lamar tried to hire him, uh, Oklahoma A&M called or Oklahoma state and like the Dallas chaperones of the ABA. Like, can you imagine a 36-year-old winning a national title? Basically, like Brad, when Brad Stevens almost won it, every school in the country is like, I want Brad Stevens to be my coach. And it, pretty much every NBA team. Don Haskins never left El Paso. So he risked his career, risked his family's livelihood, risked a lot of stuff, and then did kind of suffer a little bit because of that, because this is how he was perceived. Oh, he's the guy that plays the, the black players. But he didn't care. He did what was right. He trusted his guys and loved his guys, even though he was a small town, Oklahoma, West Texas guy. And, you know, he had three kids from New York City and two from Gary, Indiana, and one from Detroit. And forget the racial bit. It was a total culture clash and everything else, whether those kids were white or black. But he got along with them. He trusted them. And they formed this incredible team. So I had this as my number one. In my seeding bracket, I have this at number one. I don't think, uh, or maybe I'm not giving them enough credit, but sometimes, I don't know if the younger generation, those younger than us, um, would appreciate, they might think, of course, Chris Jenkins shot, you know, a couple of years ago, or even what they've seen with even, uh, you know, NC State, because that gets played all the time because of Jimmy V. But to me, this was a one seed. This was number one. What do you think? I mean, I just, I don't, I don't know. First off, yeah, the game. They, they won the game. Would it have been better if it had been a closer game? You know, they beat, they beat Kentucky by, I think, uh, seven or eight points. I mean, it's not their fault that they didn't win, win the game on the last second shot. They just won it. Um, so I don't think you can – There might there's been better games. That game actually isn't that exciting. 
Right. There's just no way any college basketball game had this impact. I mean, you're talking with right away, they started taking players across the South. And so you think about the impact that that had on the number of families that all of a sudden their, their kids could go play, get a college scholarship and not just in basketball, but football and track and baseball and whatever it was. And the power of that moment so that all the kids younger in high schools got a chance to play at their high school or more coaches were open to trying different people or instead of taking two kids on a team, all of a sudden I'm willing to take six. And the dream of saying, hey, if you study and play hard and you do this, you can get a college scholarship. And it's not just in the north or it's not just limited. Uh, Just unbelievable impact. I mean, there just simply is no game with that kind of impact. Sometimes they talk about well, Bird Magic was this huge game. It had the highest rating and all that stuff. That's true. But if if that was a real impact, Bird and Magic's game would have created higher ratings going forward, right? Instead of being a one-off. So this, to me, is the single most impactful college basketball team of all time. Um, and and I don't really know how you can argue that. I, I won't say it was the most the best team. I won't say it was the most exciting games. Uh, they play a very slow down style. But what they did, it's almost impossible uh, for, for even you and I, Andy, who have been all over this country and heard all these stories, let alone, I'm sure, younger gener- – and, and it's not a younger generation anymore for us, Andy. It's younger generations, uh, unfortunately, um, to conceptualize the idea where you, know, you had segregated schools that had no sports uh, or you had no hope of going to college. you know, it just seems almost foreign, but this is what that was. That is what they were dealing with. I mean, these kids, these kids from Harlem and and the South Bronx, they didn't want to go to El Paso for college. (laughs) This is the only place asking, you know, nobody, nobody's sitting in Harlem going, boy, I really hope I can go to school in El Paso, Texas. (laughs) They would have gone somewhere else, but you know, we, even in the North, well, we, we have our, our limit, you know, we're not taking those kids. And so, you know, that, that idea is just so impactful. So I, it's a number one seed, and I think it should be your champion. I'm not really sure how this all works, but. Well, there will be voting, so people can, the public can vote. But for me, I set it up as the one seed, because to me, as you said so eloquently, it is the most impactful. The book is Glory Road. You can still get it on Amazon and probably in libraries and wherever else. But uh, a great read. Uh, Dan is a tremendous reporter, author and historian, if you will, you uh, of the game as well. There you go. Uh, Dan, more than anything, stay safe, and hopefully uh, we'll be on the other side of this soon. Yeah, looking forward to that. Take care, Andy. All right, so that'll wrap up this edition of March Madness 365. Uh, we hope you are engaged with this. Hope you enjoyed our interviews on this topic. We want you to go to all our March Madness social media handles. Vote. Push your moments along uh, till we get to a final four. Uh, this should be, you know, a fun exercise. Look, we're, most of us are trapped at home in some form or fashion. Uh, so let's, uh, let's enjoy this. Let's embrace it more than anything. Let's all stay safe. And uh, let's hope that we get to the other side of this sooner than later. So be safe, everyone. And check this out on all our March Madness social media handles. Thanks for listening.